Hello and welcome to Before the Crow's Nest. Uh, no, like real housekeeping or anything else to say today. Uh, I'm just gonna hop into chapter two of anti-Mormon literature essays they warned you about. This chapter is entitled "Come, Leave with Us." Uh, it starts with a quote. Well, not really a quote so much as a statement we're all familiar with. We believe in God, the Eternal Father, and in His Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Ghost. Articles of Faith 1. There once was a woman who dreamt she was wandering through desolate obscurity. Darkness was enveloping her, save it for a few faint stars above. She found herself going about this strange sphere aimlessly and wondering where she ought to be. Peering out into the expanse of darkness, she began to make out pillars of black mist, each of which stretched toward the heavens. There was one numbered among them, however, which stood out. It appeared a light would periodically shine through it as the dangling curtain of mist swayed back and forth. Even at such a seemingly infinite distance, our dreamer could make out two personages silhouetted by the dancing ray of escaping light. Intrigued, she began to journey in this direction. As she passed the myriad of towering mists of blackness, she noticed they each had a different offering. Some mists appeared vacant, others only releasing indecipherable whispers and the others, surrounded by similar travelers not previously perceived through the veiling obscurity. Some of these travelers, in particular, stopped our dreamer near their corresponding pillar and boasted that which was most desirable behind their mists, why she should enter, and how it was the best resting place for travelers like herself, and, and then left her with warnings regarding the other travelers at their pillars and of the surrounding obscurities. Upon reaching the pillar of her original intrigue, that with the enigmatic dancing slit of light, she was met by two sun-dressed women who introduced themselves as sister representatives of the Mormon faith. After introductions, our dreamer inquired, I have been traveling quite some time, and have heard from many of the others, but I was intrigued by you from afar. What do you require to pass through? Why, we do not require anything, one of the sisters replied with a wintry smile arising on her face. The other sister, while smiling all the same, revealed, However, the Lord asks that we consecrate all. They embellished their great faith by effervescently listing off the moral and societal contributions of their church by way of fast offerings for the poor, stockpiles for the Lord and his kingdom, the word of wisdom, maintaining church buildings, early morning seminary, youth activities, leadership training, scripture study, devotionals, youth camps, family history, family home evening, watching and attending general conference, weekly church service, humanitarian service, outdoor malls, welfare, temple work, inordinately long musical productions, full-time missions, home teaching, and church callings. Our dreamer paused for a moment after the recitation before asking, What does all of this have to do with your belief in God and your proof for his divine existence and intervention in our lives? The sisters simultaneously replied, The work speaks for itself. 
Why would anyone join such a church? With another statement we're all familiar with. We believe in the gift of tongues, prophecy, revelation, visions, healing, interpretation of tongues, and so forth. At a time when members of various churches throughout the world are beginning to see through the veil of totalitarianism, why would the membership numbers of the Mormon church be any different? In short, they are not. A brief analytical overview of church-provided data reveals that while the recorded number of members is increasing, the growth rate of new members year after year has fallen a staggering 1.17% over the past decade. Tracking and analyzing membership data can turn trivial very fast. When one gets into the thick of it, one must start to consider intangible or transitory information such as membership retention for converts in their first year, disillusioned members who do not bother to remove their records, or scant data reporting, all on a global scale, just to name a few. Besides, the church doesn't need to accurately account for all membership gains and losses as long as they are still collecting the 10% for their portfolios from someone somewhere. Now, there are many reasons why the tides of the waters of Mormon are shifting, but may I offer perhaps just one? In January 2015, Elder Dallin H. Oaks of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, while being interviewed regarding the church's historical intolerance of homosexuality and same-sex marriage, said that it is not in the interest of the church, nor within its doctrines and principles, to seek nor issue apologies. He continued, saying, quote, we sometimes look back on issues and say, maybe that was counterproductive for what we wish to achieve, but we look forward and not backward. Close quote. The first of Oaks's contradictions becomes apparent when one inevitably catches themselves reflecting on another of his popular teachings regarding these types of changes, saying they happen in the Lord's way and according to the Lord's timetable. If the behavior was counterproductive, and it was in the unchanging Lord's way and time, then it stands to reason the Lord's way and time are counterproductive to the betterment and furthering of society. Indeed, one need not look back too far in the church's history to see just how graciously the Lord's way and time worked out for their black members, who did not have the opportunity of receiving the priesthood of God until a full decade after the end of the civil rights movement. Or, as one may also look at it, a few centuries into the slavery or otherwise debasement of some of his children, solely for where and when he commissioned them to be born, and a 148-year undeniable denial of the blessings of God to be received from being a bearer of his divine priesthoods. Of course, we should not forget that for Oaks and any other priesthood bearer to receive inspiring revelations, they must first qualify to receive them. So it would seem that the Lord's way in time also requires that these men are behaving well enough. How much time has been wasted waiting for shriveled old buzzards and their Lord's time? As the leaders of the Mormon church unctuously press on in the work leading up to the great and dreadful day of their Lord, they leave behind them the pain and sorrow brought on by their misdeeds and sophistry. It is apparent that they do look back. 
What they continually fail to find when they do is the responsibility for the consequences of their principles, declarations, proclamations, and doctrines. The leaders of the church need to grow up, pull up their big boy garments, and admit that they do not want the unnecessary suffering, deaths, and misery of their fellow intelligences on their hands or conscience. I say it is lucky for people such as Dallin Oaks that there is no hell, but would add that that is rather a pity. Later this same year, another wrinkled, tawdry old vulture of the Quorum of the Twelve, Elder Dodd Christofferson, who has been known since at least 2008 to have an openly gay brother, spoke out on the matter of what is known as the November 2015 Policy, or the Policy of Exclusion. For those unfamiliar with this policy and the unprecedented retrenchment of struggling members and their families, the church policy stated that excommunication for the sin of apostasy would now be the proper course of action for homosexual Mormons who enter into a same-sex marriage. Being strung about like the church's public relations department's marionette whenever the topic of same-sex marriage arises, Christofferson said, quote, we recognize that same-sex marriages are now legal in the United States and some other countries, and that people have the right, if they choose, to enter into those, and we understand that. But that is not a right which exists in the church. That's the clarification. It's a matter of being clear. It's a matter of understanding right and wrong. It's a matter of firm policy that doesn't allow for question or doubt. Close quote. The policy, like an Aztec priest during the Atalcohalo festivals, ripped the hearts out of the children of their flock when stating that if the child happens to have same-sex parents, they cannot receive their first saving ordinance of the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. At least not until they denounce their parents' sinful ways, ascribe to the doctrines and principles of Mormonism, and receive approval from the First Presidency. In an attempt to address this, Christofferson added they are, quote, not disavowing their parents, but disavowing the practice, close quote. Filthy ecclesiastical casuistry at its finest, with a rewording of the classic, we hate the sin, but love the sinner. I regretfully preached this platitude from the pulpit during my painfully pedantic mission farewell speech. I still recall and often reflect on the friendly disapproval of the use of such a sentiment I received from a peer. I do not claim to remember what he said precisely, but it had such an impact that I ceased using the phrase, and to the best of my recollection, have never used it since. The Mormon Church and this awful policy teach children how to shame and condemn their parents, not for what they are doing, but for what how, and who they are as fellow human beings. Like the Nephite nation, having caused a splinter, Russell Nelson and co. and their disgraceful, immoral, anti-family policy collapsed under the weight and pressure of the societal and congregational backlash. By April 2019, the policy received an unprecedented reversal, and former President Tommy Monson, prophet, seer, and revelator responsible for the abhorrent policy, received the stamp of heretic across his ministry. This, only two and a half years after Nelson is on record saying, quote, It was our privilege as apostles to sustain what had been revealed to President Monson. Close quote.
The announcement to members participating in same-sex marriages declared that they are no longer considered apostates, according to Dowlin Oaks, but they instead will receive the same virulent treatment as heterosexual sexual sinners. In in an attempt to scotch-tape the hearts of the children back inside their now-decaying and hollow spiritual, mental, and emotional chest cavities, the changes state that they no longer need the approval of the First Presidency to receive their baptism, but rather the okay from their understanding and supportive, quote, custodians. Notice the children are still not required to understand and support their custodians in return should they not want. The disrespect for the loving caretakers, the parents of another human's child of your God, is pungent. Does the commandment to honor thy father and thy mother count if the parents were just yesterday considered apostates? I suppose it didn't matter to begin with. It didn't say, honor thy mother and thy mother. Don't be fooled by why the church would reverse such a policy. They change under pressure for fear of their impending insignificance. In any case, all of this unnecessary and shameful policymaking can otherwise be interpreted as either God is capricious, sinister, and unloving, or so it is the state of the Mormon church's leadership. In other words, God wanted this policy in place, so he relayed the instructions to his then-beloved prophet, but later decided, in his omnipotence, that he was mistaken. Never mind the evident pain and suffering he had brought upon countless children and families, changes which will echo through the very fiber of their family well-being for generations. He didn't have an apology for them to relay through his new and improved prophet. It's either this or the leaders of the Mormon church have reached a level of comfort so high that any method of upending and shattering the lives of their members do not, by their standards, constitute compassion or empathy, let alone an apology. Is there no accountability for these actions? They are able to continually exonerate God due to the mysteriousness of his will, But are we truly able to continually exonerate the leaders because of their supposed divine calling and the fallibility of men? I believe Quentin Cook summed it up nicely when he said, This is the commencement of the fulfillment of the great and marvelous work Nephi foresaw among both the Gentiles and the house of Israel. Nephi saw our time when the saints of God would be upon all the face of the earth but their numbers would be small because of wickedness, close quote. Emphasis added. Revelators and first principles. We believe all that God has revealed, all that he does now reveal, and we believe that he will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Articles of Faith 9. If it is to be believed on faith that what these men are saying and doing is accurate to God's will and to our well-being and salvation, yet something so reprehensible as this policy occurs, how can their word be trusted or believed on faith to any degree? If the church is true, and Tommy Monson, the late prophet of God, president of the Quorum of the Twelve, and leader of 16 million of God's children got something so despicably wrong— then how could any of those millions possibly have confidence in any of its leadership? 
the leaders of the church cannot tell individual members, families, and entire groups that the mind-forged manacles they set forth are no longer real or of eternal consequence, because for those who had the misfortune of being involved, the torment and suffering induced by them is evergreen. If the prophet can fail so many members at once, this not being the first generation or subgroup to be affected by the thundering of the prophetic gavel, and the claim was that of revelation, what merit could possibly be retained for future revealed truths when the infallibility cloak has been plainly revealed instead? Everything that has been revealed, and every revelation to come, should receive the highest scrutiny from all members. In his 1794 book, The Age of Reason, Thomas Paine aptly explained, But admitting for the sake of a case that something has been revealed to a certain person and not revealed to any other person, it is revelation to that person only. When he tells it to a second person, a second to a third, a third to a fourth, and so on, it ceases to be a revelation to all those persons. It is revelation to the first person only and hearsay to every other, and consequently they are not obliged to believe it. Faith is belief from ignorance. Faith is a seed in the heart in lieu of seeds in the mind. Faith is having a biannual one-way conversation with the leaders of the church and having complete confidence and trust in what they relay to you as being correct and through the direct line of authority to the only true God of this universe. Should you have any questions or objections regarding a matter taught from the black walnut, or an essay published, or a policy updated, well, then shame on you. You must doubt the doubts you've been having, forego rehearsing those doubts with others, and rely on that seed of faith they told you you need to plant in your heart, lest ye return to outer chaos. The same goes for you too, victims of abuse. Repent, and have faith in your leaders. Let it grow, let it grow. Faith is relying on the words of local and area leaders, missionaries, social media influencers, so-called fair Mormons, or those commonly consenting to interpret scriptures, essays, and discourses, as well as defend history, principles, policies, and doctrines. The prophet and apostles live to answer for themselves, so why rely on individuals just as detached as you are from the presidency and their divine source of truth? because there is a hierarchy set in place? Convenient. Furthermore, is it truly to be believed that these men are any more special or important than you so as they may receive the answers to the proper, unquestioning course of your life? We have already seen that what they reveal can be just as effortlessly repealed, though evidently not before it is sealed. Why continue to allow them to do this to you? The leaders of the Mormon church need to answer in real time, not in at ch underscore Jesus Christ press releases, or mostly one-sided and topic-eschewing press conferences, or in YouTube videos, or banal conferences, but in actual two-way conversation, answering real tough questions with its members. One of the starkest examples of the leaders poorly responding to the calls, cries, and pleas of its members outside of their typical methods became evident between 2010 and 2013 as the church began to undertake the wave of apostasy sweeping its members in what is known as the Swedish Rescue. 
Members in Sweden had fallen into mass crisis when church historical inaccuracies and otherwise disturbing information began to surface. Then-church historian Marlon Jensen and assistant church historian Richard Turley were dispatched to an emergency fireside in 2010 to answer the questions and concerns of the membership. Needless to say, the spraying of scriptural bactine and the application of faith-based band-aids did nothing to soothe the actual wounds, fears, and anxieties of the flock in Sweden. However, it did become more noticeable that faith is indeed the excuse used when leaders lack sound reasons for believing what they claim to believe. Faith, even with works, does absolutely nothing to confirm the validity of truth claims. Exercising faith with works is a time waster, promoter of, and adherent to fear-mongering doctrines. The church corporation is corrupt, and the fact that it can do good from a humanitarian, missionary, or otherwise community service perspective is simply because they have good people to do good work. Faith is relying on a hopefully worthy priesthood bearer to authoritatively call upon the one true Holy Spirit of God to guide or heal you by means of the laying on of hands and, presumably, inspired spoken word. Purple pineapples proudly parading is not something you or the aforementioned priesthood bearer could have known I would say for you to hear in this moment. Invariably, neither one of you can know your next thought until the thought has already occurred, let alone which thought or impression may be the guiding voice of God. In other words, Russell Nelson, or whichever current prophet it may be, no more knows his next thought prior to thinking it than you let alone which thought or impression may be the revelating, doctrinal-changing, faith-shattering, guiding voice of God. Hollow Compassion We believe that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. Articles of Faith 3 Walking the path of discipleship, which begins with baptism, something children of gay parents cannot embark on without playing doctrinal shoots and ladders and expressing custodial denouncements first, offers the church's first principle of hollow compassion. This is, of course, done in the guise of treasured blessings. It promises that which it cannot and should not promise. Peace and healing for those who suffer in sorrow, liberty and rest for those burdened by the religiously imposed guilt and shame of their sins, and knowledge for those poor in spirit and honest of heart. Those who walk faithfully in the path of discipleship of Christ no more avoid the pitfalls, sorrows, and regrets of life than the rest because life will inevitably have pitfalls, sorrows, and regrets of varying and subjective degrees. For disciples, trials are redefined through the lens of faith, and presumed eternal blessings for having suffered and endured as a faithful agent will be paid in full. Whether those invoices receive payment in this life or the next is up to God. They tell you that you are too weak to overcome burdens, trials, and sins without the appeal to the atoning sacrifice of a dead man from the early Roman period via his omnipresent ghost proxy. This is first, immoral, and second, significantly disregards any helping hand offered naturally in the here and now. 
hollow compassion in its disingenuous manner slowly and carefully constructs a wall in the faith-driven individual's mind protecting them from the so-called storms of the secular world and hindering their ability to properly cope with the realities of life its hardships and the inevitability of death perhaps the most egregious moment of hollow compassion comes with the promise of reunion with your most precious loved ones in an afterlife blessed reunion is however reserved for the valiant and faithful disciples should any of your loved ones die in sin or god forbid commit the unpardonable sin of denying the spirit of the holy ghost you will not get to see them again the same goes for you in reverse sinner on the other hand should either of you continue to move your shackles along the path of the iron rod to becoming exalted godly beings will your very nature not be rendered unable to look at sin without the least degree of allowance certainly the exalted will be off in yonder spheres creating their universe so they may also have their only begotten no doubt son barbarically tortured and murdered for the greater good hoping on faith that their children will shape up and follow the commandments so they too may receive their prefab mansions in their inevitable planet creating afterlife all of this gradual scraping at the walls of the pericardium further hollowing out the hearts of the saints perfectly sets the vital organ up for perforation as their jabbing unhelpful pithy platitudes consequentially claim they are in a better place god works in mysterious ways it was just their time god needed his angel to serve on the other side these phrases and their ugly variants do nothing but reveal the glaring ineptitude of thought among these belief systems to convince others their loved ones are better off now and will be seen again is to confess we failed to help or attend to them while they were here that nothing more could have been done nevertheless all is well for you will meet again in the next life and share in endless joy if you'd only stop masturbating such a disgusting belief provides nothing but a disservice to every mind upon which it is impressed certainly deceiving others by the employment of hollow compassion is to disrespect them to their very core as fellow human beings to the apostate we claim the privilege of worshiping almighty god according to the dictates of our own conscience and allow all men the same privilege let them worship how where or what they may articles of faith 11. the church really honors free sorry moral and personal agency they honor it so much that when you stray to different paths they will still respect you your decision and privilege to worship according to the dictates of your own conscience is so incredibly respected that when their hearts break upon you uncovering their lies they delegate the process of excommunication to ill-equipped local leaders until you've felt that godly sorrow and learned your lesson when one pours through the stories of foremans who have bravely shared their stories and the dictates of their own conscience the disrespect of the church in regards to questioning reason and free inquiry becomes excruciatingly evident 
They say there is room for you among them, but do not forget that unless you obey, there is no room for you in their kingdom. It is crucial one remembers that words and concepts such as apostasy are merely symbols of human construct. To be an apostate is to recognize your own incredulity, accept it, and move forward. It is to take a great risk, the risk of losing family and friends or a career. It is to say that you have had quite enough of the deception and that your desire to speak out against the shameful, life-altering policies and doctrines which pervert the Mormon community is increasing exponentially. Apostasy is born of dissidence and is an achievement worthy of unlocking. Though they necessitate a council, excommunication from me would merely be secretarial, saving me the paperwork there so that I may focus on the paperwork here. If you seek truth, meaning, and a way to convert faith into reason and rationality, if you are tired of belonging, come, leave with us. If you have already left the faith you once embraced, keep moving forward, but don't look back. You may end up a pillar of salt. If you are tempted to give up on the church, give up yesterday and continue looking back on your incredulity and closed-mindedness. Come, leave with us. I plead with you all to hear and read these words. Come, leave with us. Cease heeding the false call of the long dead but unfortunately not forgotten Christ. Put down the cross they make you bear and don't follow anyone in particular. Come, leave with us. For when you are in the world and also of the world, you will begin to understand and appreciate even more than you think you possibly could that which is most precious beyond price. I do not testify that here you will find the words of eternal life, the promise of posthumous glory, and the pathway to peace and happiness. That would only serve you an injustice in the further blinding of your mind against free thinking. It would be to disrespect you as a fellow traveler on this beautifully unpredictable sphere in this beautifully unpredictable universe. I do not send my thoughts and prayers to you during your search for truth, for that would be of absolutely no use to you. Rather, I would send you the true order of thoughts and prayers by putting your name in the nearest Mormon temple. That'll certainly do the trick.